Well, good morning, Hope Church. This is weird. <laughs> Preaching to an empty room. Um, so Art tells me there's seven of you out there, so it's good to know that you guys got up early this morning to, uh, on this 4th of July weekend. Um, so uh, yeah, 4th of July, Independence Day, this has a particularly special meaning for me because many, many years ago, I was uh, uh, sworn in as a citizen, citizen of this country, so you know, this, uh, so this is a, a special day for me personally. Um, Today, we're going to take a look at a passage uh, from Matthew chapter 1, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12. And uh, this is the, a passage that has been uh, dear to my heart for the past uh, few months, and you'll get to uh, hear why. But let me just start by reading uh, from the top, verse 1, seeing the crowds He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word is life and it is truth. And it is um, something that we need each and every day. And we, play, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and you would help me to express in words um, your message to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus began his ministry preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 17. He called Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, and many others to follow him. Having gathered his disciples, he had to teach them the ways of the kingdom of heaven. What kind of character ought a follower of Jesus Christ aspire to be? What are the values of God's kingdom? In one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the Beatitude summarizes the values of God's kingdom. There are eight Beatitudes, each beginning with the word blessed. Some have translated the Greek word as happy, but the meaning of blessed goes beyond feeling happy. Happy feelings are momentary. They come and go depending on the circumstances. I'm on vacation and it's sunny outside. I'm happy, but if it's raining, I'm bummed. 
being blessed is not a subject is not the subjective feeling but an objective state of well-being that belongs to those who attach themselves to Jesus needy and trusting in the strength of the Lord says one commentator on the surface the eight statements are perplexing none of the conditions appear to be all that appealing who wants to be poor in spirit mourn be meek or be persecuted it sounds rather absurd to be called blessed jesus said blessed are those who mourn so for your birthday i got you a box of rusty nails and broken glass hope you enjoy it okay that's not exactly what jesus meant but nevertheless this is still confusing so what is the key to correctly interpreting his words paradox Jesus spoke in paradox to get our attention one preacher wrote Christ was the master of the paradox his teaching is salted with shining contrasts like last is first giving is receiving dying is living losing is finding least is greatest poor is rich weakness is strength serving is ruling for Christ paradoxes were a especially effective way of getting people to see essential spiritual truth and what is that what is that truth in this section of of the bible the values of the kingdom are very different from the values of the kingdom of this world in fact you could say his values run counter to the culture to mourn is good meekness is a strength if you embody the beatitudes in your life the world will look at you perplexed and say i can't quite figure you out when the church is faithful to the teaching of the beatitudes it will shine as countercultural It's important to note that every disciple must aim to encompass all of the eight beatitudes in his own life because they are all interrelated and hang together. You will not reflect the character of Christ if you have some but not others. In addition, each of the eight beatitudes are logically ordered and builds upon the thought of the previous one. We do not have time to go over all eight beatitudes. One could preach eight separate sermons for each beatitude. So today, I would like to draw your attention to the paradox found in verse five. Blessed are the weak, for they shall inherit the earth. So, since you, I wasn't able to submit my outline in time, here's my outline for the sermon. What is meekness? why does it matter and how do we become a person of meekness to be meek is not to be weak it's a different kind of strong what is biblical meekness to understand what biblical meekness is we'll start with what it is not biblical meekness is not a person who is submissive always willing to go th- along with whatever other people want them to do a pushover meek as a mouse it's also not a person who's timid cowardice lacking courage a doormat 
And it's more than a person that is always nice. Now, there's nothing wrong to being nice. In fact, I was voted the nicest person in sixth grade by my classmates. I'm not sure why, but I was. But being nice, if being nice keeps you from opposing evil or speaking the truth in love, then that's not what we're talking about. The meek person has a hunger and thirst for righteousness. So he must be willing to confront sin and injustice. To demonstrate meekness is not a weakness of character. The Bible gives us two examples who were labeled as being meek. In the Old Testament, we have Moses, who was described as meek in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Think about who Moses was. He was the leader of the Israelites who had to repeatedly confront Pharaoh, the most powerful and stubborn ruler in his time. Moses was far from being meek as a mouse. Then he had to repeatedly endure the grumbling of the Israelites and even withstand challenges to his authority by his own sister Miriam and brother Aaron. Now, we all have sisters and brothers, and they can push buttons and get us going. So maybe this is why Moses is considered the meekest person on earth, because he didn't lash out. In uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, it says, uh, And he said, that is God, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? If anyone should feel weak and meek as a mouse, it certainly was not Moses. Moses had the Lord God on his side, so others should have shuddered to challenge Moses' authority as a supreme leader of Israel. So in Moses' case, we learn that meekness does not diminish his authority. Biblical meekness is a quality even for those in positions of power. Turning over to the New Testament, the example of meekness that is given to us is our Lord Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In verse 29 there, the word translated gentle is the same Greek word as, can you guess? Meek in the Beatitudes. So to be, so to be meek in the Bible is bringing together the qualities of gentleness and humbleness that is lowly in heart. You can think of biblical meekness like an alloy. An alloy is a combination of two metals. A steel alloy combines iron and carbon 
which produces a metal of greater strength. Similarly, biblical meekness combines gentleness and humility, which together produces a person of great strength and beauty of character. If you embody the gentleness and humbleness of Christ in your life, as you relate to others, you will be able to minister with the same attractiveness as Christ himself. And you will stand out as countercultural to the world. For the way of the world applauds the person who is assertive and self-confident. It praises the individual who by the force of his personality can impose his will on others and drive his agenda through. But this is not the way of Christ's disciples. We are to operate out of a different value system and our aim is different. Our aim is to lead by serving others with the same grace and mercy that has been shown to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, why does biblical meekness matter? So we talked about what biblical meekness is and is not. Now I want to talk about why the alloy of gentleness and humility matters. It matters because people matter more than our agenda. People matter more than our agenda. We all have agendas. If you're a kid, your agenda is to play. If you're a parent, your agenda is to stop them from playing and get them to do their work. Our agenda rules us. Consequently, driving our agenda through matters more than loving the people in our lives. When the meek person moves towards the other in gentleness and humility, you've made a choice to lay aside your own agenda for the sake of others. The choice feels like a mini death. Love always requires dying to self so others can receive life. Have you ever been in this situation, those of us that are married, that is? You're sitting there comfortably in front of your favorite TV show with an ice cream in your hand. From the other room, your wife calls out, Honey, can you go make me some tea? You've got two choices there. Pretend you didn't hear her. Or get up and make that tea. Getting up and making that tea is a mini death. It's a choice to lay aside our agendas for, so that the other person can receive something good. But of course, that's not the way that we all behave. We're agenda-driven. I have something you want, so I will assert myself to get you to do what I want. I will raise my voice. And if I still don't get what I want, I might resort to manipulation to guilt you to do what I want. Have you witnessed someone belittled to make them feel dumb so that they will follow orders? Well, that's a stupid idea. Just do as I say. The human heart is wickedly clever at finding a dozen ways to push your agenda through. But a disciple of Christ does not operate in this way. A Christian operates under a different agenda. God has an agenda too. It's, ref it's what's referred to as calling. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, it says, And he, that is the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up of the body of Christ. Ministers and missionaries are not the only ones called to ministry. All of us are called. The shepherds, that is the pastors, teachers, job is to equip the saints for ministry. Each one of us is called to learn so that we can do the work of ministry. We all have that responsibility to engage in the work of ministry, which leads to the strengthening of the church, Christ's body. And at the most fundamental level, this work of ministry is caring for one another. Listen to the vision that Christian counselor Ed Welch lays out in his book, Caring for One Another. Imagine an interconnected group of people who entrust themselves to each other, who can speak your pain and someone responds with compassion and prayer. You can speak your joys and someone shares in them with you. You can even ask for help with sinful struggles and someone prays with you, offers hope and encouragement from scripture and sticks with you until sin no longer seems to have the upper hand. There is openness, freedom, friendship, bearing burdens together and giving and receiving wisdom. No trite responses and Jesus throughout it all. Is that not a beautiful picture of what the, ch- what the church can and ought to be? Wouldn't you like to be a part of such a church? If you think about it, the Beatitudes are more than followers who individually have a countercultural character. It is about collectively creating a cu- community that is countercultural, that is an alternate society with God as its king. As you move towards others, ask yourself, am I ready to care for another with gentleness and humility, concerned about knowing you, praying with and for you and serving you? You're called to care for every person you interact with, your wife, your husband, child, dad, mom, brother, sisters, friend, coworker, boss, neighbor, stranger, all are to be the recipients of your meekness. So put off your agenda and put on God's agenda as you move towards others. And we can begin to do this today, right after this sermon. Think about a person whom you can say, how are you doing? And be ready to listen and, be, and ask and share your own concerns with them. All right, so we've talked about what biblical meekness is, why it matters, and now we're going to talk about how do you become this person of meekness. If you feel like, well, this doesn't sound so hard, I can do this if I set my mind to it, then you'll fail. But if you feel this is too hard, that you're not qualified for this, then there's hope for you. The Beatitudes are not a life philosophy to adopt. It requires nothing less than the supernatural grace of God to make us meek. The first step is conversion and regeneration. You must confess, I am lost, broken, and sinful before a holy God, unable to save myself. Then you must receive the gift of salvation, forgiveness of sins, 
and be born again by the Holy Spirit. The evidence that conversion and regeneration has happened in your life is that there is an awareness of your poverty of spirit. Jesus starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, because until you're brought low to see your weaknesses and neediness before God, you cannot proceed to become becoming biblically meek. There's a logical sequence to these beatitudes. First, having seen your desperate situation before God, all feelings of self-confidence evaporate. You are spiritually bankrupt. Romans 3, verse 9 to 12 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. There is no unrighteous, not even one, says the book of Romans. Your spiritual bank account has a few pennies of righteous acts. It will never be enough to pay the massive debt you owe to the holy God. Furthermore, the second beatitude takes us to the next logical progression of downward spirituality. Just as the first beatitude leads us to confession, the second leads us to contrition. Blessed are those who mourn. At first glance, this beatitude addresses, seems to address those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. But in this context, it is not primarily speaking about mourning due to bereavement, but a mourning caused by one's own sinfulness. When the Spirit exposes how easily our hearts are controlled by and cling to sin, and how stubbornly we refuse to give it up, even though we've experienced its misery, we can't but say with King David in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Mourning, grief, brokenness, and contrition humbles us and keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. It also allows us to not be afraid of being weak before others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul boasts about his weaknesses because it was in his weaknesses that he experienced the power of Christ sustaining him. In chapter 12, verse 9 to 10, it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. J.I. Packer says in his book, The Way of Weakness, that the way of true spiritual strength leading to real fruitfulness in Christian life and service is the humble, self-distrustful way of consciously recognized weaknesses in spiritual things. In May of 2019, just one month before he died of pancreatic cancer, David Paulson, director of Christian Counseling Education Foundation outside of Philadelphia, wrote a letter addressing the graduating students at Westminster Theological Seminary. 
he exhorted these future pastors, missionaries, ministry leaders with the following words. Be unafraid to be publicly weak. Be like King David. His strength grew out of his comprehensive sense of weakness and his confidence in God's strength. The right kind of strength comes from the right kind of weakness. Meekness is not weakness in the negative sense. It's weakness in the positive sense, being under the hand and voice and will of another, heeding the voice of his father. He was meek for you and for me, fully trusting God's promises, fully obeying God's will. He is the one in whose image we are to become. So there we have it. Biblical meekness is not weakness. It's a different kind of strength. Biblical meekness matters because people matter more than our agendas. And we're all called to the ministry of caring for one another with gentleness and humility. And our reward, it says, is that we will inherit the earth. Now, I'm not sure what exactly that means, but I think what it means is that in the Old Testament, the Israelites were promised the inheritance of the physical land. But in the New Testament, we look forward to heaven. And as fellow heirs of Christ, we will one day reign with him in that day. I think what it's saying is that those who are proud, God opposes, but those who are weak and humble, he will lift up on that day. So, that's it for me. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Father God, thank you that um, you are such a great, great and gracious God who uses us, those who are meek, to do something marvelous for the kingdom of God. And we pray that you will uh, enable Hope Church to be a place where collectively we are a community of meek people relying upon you, trusting in your strength, um, and believing in the grace and goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.